John chapter 17 is where we will be today uh, and next week, actually. John 17, we're looking specifically from verses um, 6 through 19, uh, but we're going to read it all together. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever been in a situation where you just couldn't help but eavesdrop on somebody nearby? You ever been in that situation um, where I remember uh, in Virginia, I was having dinner at a, uh, a local barbecue restaurant, and I was in a booth, and I was talking to somebody, and I think it might have been my assistant pastor at the time, and uh, two people sat down behind us, but behind us, you know, sometimes you can hear the voices of what somebody's saying, and they were talking about visiting churches in the area, and I just couldn't help Sorry, I got problems, all right? Uh, I'll repent of that later. Uh, but as they're talking about the churches that they had visited and their experience, and then they got to the church where I was pastoring. And so it's like, wow, I get the opportunity to be a fly on the wall just momentarily to hear what somebody else actually thinks about our church and I was kind of, you know, because we're selfish and we're prideful, we're like, I wonder what they thought of the preaching, you know? I wonder what they thought of the pastor. And, you know, they said things like, you know, that guy, that was the most handsome pastor I've ever been to, you know, <laughs> most gifted communicator. No, they didn't say those kind of things. But, I mean, that's, I, I was waiting. And, and what we find in John chapter 17 is this. I almost feel like I'm an eavesdropper in John chapter 17. Because you have two pieces, two parts of the, the Godhead, two persons of the Godhead, Jesus speaking to his Father on our behalf. And it's like we're eavesdropping into this, this cosmic conversation. And, and the depths of this prayer are so deep that, that we will never, as a church or an individual, ever reach the bottom. There is no line that is long enough to fathom its depths. And yet, at the same time, there's a simplicity in John's writing in the prayer that Jesus has with his Father that really encourages our hearts. So let's, let's eavesdrop, if you will, into the heart of Christ going to the Father. Here's where we are, John chapter 17. And again, this is right before Jesus is betrayed and crucified, right after um, the farewell discourse that we find in, in John chapter 13 through 16. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take care of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Um, I'm sorry, let me go back. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And we all say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Would you pray with me? Father, you have given us scripture so that we might be sanctified. You have given us this bit of scripture, this portion of scripture, so that we might understand what Jesus has prayed. Father, you have given us this bit of scripture so that that we might know you more fully. So, Father, as we come to your word, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would place ourselves underneath it, that we would take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And, Father, when it calls us to obey, I pray that we would. When it calls us to holiness, I pray, Lord, that we would pursue holiness. Father, for those who are listening, I pray, Lord, that you would give them attentive hearts and minds. And for me, Father, I pray, Lord, that I would be clear that you would give me clarity of thought and lucidity of speech so that we might worship you all the more. Father, help us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 17 is is typically broken up into three different sections. The first five verses we went over last week speaking about the glory of of Christ, the glory of the Father, the the glory of the Father being given to the Son, the Son glorifying the Father, the mission that Jesus had to accomplish all of this brought glory to the Father as well as glory to himself. We see that on the cross he is glorified. We we see this idea of glory having a, a double meaning. One in the Old Testament, the idea of glory was one of weightiness that was heavy. There's this weightiness, worthiness of worship. 
But also in the New Testament, there's this idea of glory, meaning this, this shining radiance, this visible manifestation of glory and, and radiance and, and bright sun. And so we see that Jesus is, is accomplishing all of these things. And then he gets to this second section, which is 6 through 19, and he begins to pray for the disciples in particular, to all of those who had been with him up until this point. And then we find um, at the latter section of John chapter 17, we'll get there uh, in the coming weeks, uh, John chapter 17 verses 20 through 26, what we find is he's actually praying for those who would believe beyond the disciples. Now, so when when we think about um, this particular passage from from really verse, you know, say six through 19, what he's talking about is all of those, and, and he says it in verse six, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Now, let me set this up. Um, If I was going to give an outline for this, and I was really looking to have like four S's, um, but I couldn't find one for the first one, so I'll just give it to you. It's um, this, that we are given, that we are secured, that we are sanctified, and then we are sent. So we are given, we are secured, we are then... Um, sanctified, and then we are sent. That's where we're going today in the midst of verses 6 through 19. And again, when he's praying for, he's saying, I have manifested, meaning when, when you manifest something to someone, you're saying, I have shown you this. Like, I'm displaying this for you. So when we look at this, it's not just, I don't believe, just for the disciples who are there, But think about everybody that Jesus manifested the glory of the Father in the book of John. And again, when we think about what is the the reason that the book of John was written, in John chapter 20, verse 31, he writes these things so that we might believe and that by believing we may have life in his name. And so all of those individuals, when we think about this, when we think about Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you know, he's, he's praying that Nicodemus, who's one of the Pharisees, one of the leaders, you know, would not, you know, falter, and that he would be unified. He's also praying for, you know, the woman at the well. When we think about the, the two great juxtapositions of, you know, this Samaritan woman at the well, but also this leader of the Jews named Nicodemus, we see this juxtaposition, and Jesus is praying for them, along with praying for a bunch of fishermen disciples who are literally going to turn the world upside down with the message of the gospel. And he prays for them. Now, he says, I have manifested your name, meaning, and, and, and when we think about the Old Testament, to know someone's name is to know them in terms of their character. It's not just a name, but it represents knowing who they are fully. And so when Jesus says, I have manifested myself to them, to, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, what he's saying is, I have shown them what holiness is. I have shown them what humility is. I have shown them what truthfulness is. I have shown them what compassion and justice and love and forgiveness. I have shown them all these things. And we see all of those characteristics about who Jesus is throughout the Gospel of John. And Jesus is saying, all of these, all of these people, I have shown them. And notice what it says that to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, that they have kept your word. 
Again, um, let me quote Eric Alexander, a Scottish preacher who said this um, regarding the Gospel of John. He says this about the love gift. He said, the Son, meaning Jesus, is the, is the Father's love gift to the world. We see that in John 3.16. And we see that the Father's love gift to the world is Jesus. But then we see this in John chapter 17, verse 6, that believers are the Father's love gift to the Son. In, in chapter 17, verse 6, that the Father has given these believers to Jesus. Now, this, this idea of being given to Jesus is similar to, um, you know, a, a wedding. And in the midst of our, our weddings, what's, what's wonderful about being a pastor is I always get like the best view of, of the, the doors being flung open and the bride coming down the center aisle. And by the way, we have, we have a beautiful sanctuary, you know, where, where these doors fly open and then uh, brides will actually come down. And what's great is I have the best view. I actually have to kind of bring the groom over to the section where I'm at. And then as the, the, the bride and her father come down the aisle, then we have what we would call the declaration of intent, you know, because you're the father, you know, what, he's, what is he doing there? What is the father doing there? He's giving away the bride. He's giving away his daughter to this man. And, and in the same way, when, when, when the father comes down, he wants to hear the declaration of intent. He wants to hear from this man that he will love his daughter. And then he wants also to hear from his daughter's lips that she loves this man. And so the declaration of intent happens prior to me being the pastor saying, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And then I always say, you know, and this is, this is, where, this is why we have a rehearsal. Basically, we have a rehearsal dinner and, and a rehearsal so that the dad can get this right. Okay, so that the dad can get it right and all the groomsmen can actually play the part and not be a bunch of foolish young men, right? That's what we're doing. That's why you have a rehearsal. And I say to the dad every time, you know, like we don't have as many veils anymore. I said, this is what you do, dad. This is like your time to shine. Because I need you to lift that veil. If she didn't have a veil, that's okay. And I need you to kiss her on the cheek. And then I need you to take her hand and I need you to place it into his hand so that you are giving her away. This is what you do. And I said, and the reason you do this, the reason that you want to hear the affirmation of, of their intent is because your daughter is precious to you. That you are giving something that you have spent hours and days and years loving and caring for. All the days of, of you know, reading books in your lap, all of the days where you would hand in hand walk with her and carefully protect her and raise her up, all of that time you're saying, I have raised up this child, this, this beloved child, and now I am placing her into your hand. And I said, it's akin to, and I never say this in the wedding, but I say in the rehearsal, it's like giving a Stradivarius violin to a gorilla. <laughs> you are placing her hand. Now, in the same way, what we find is that believers 
are given to Jesus in this way. That the Father in heaven loves us and then he gives us as the bride of Christ to Jesus. We are given to him. That's how much the Father loves us. The Father loves us enough to give us to the bridegroom. You see, the Son is the Father's love gift to the world. Believers are the Father's love gift to the Son. And believers' love gift to the Father and the Son. So as we give back our love gift to the Father and to the Son, we find this in verse 6, that they have kept your word, that we obey the word of God. They have, and then we receive the word of God. In verse 8, it says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and in receiving them have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. You see, there's this, this aspect of, of, of the gift that we give to the Father and Son of receiving the word you know, joyfully but obeying the word and being received into relationship with the Father and the Son. And that's what Jesus is saying. You have given them to me. Now, if you have given them to Jesus, there is also this aspect of security, you know, and, and, or a protection, or keeping them. We, we find that not only are we given, but we are also secured. Notice what it says in verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which, which you have given them. Now, the idea of keeping them is also you know, reiterated in verse 12. While I was with them, and again, he's talking about the disciples that he's, he's with or has been with, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. So there's this idea of, of, of Jesus, and again, one of the reasons that we sang this, this song, I have a friend, you know, his name is Jesus, is that our friend, Jesus, is interceding on our behalf that the Father would protect us. Because Jesus is saying in the midst of being with the disciples, he has kept them and guarded them and protected them. And in a similar way, he says in verse 15 of John chapter 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. There's three different places. There seems to be as if we are not capable of actually protecting ourselves or ourselves as the collective body it is. And, and I think what he's saying is, he's like, they are going to have the world coming at them. And in the midst of the world coming against them, Father, would you guard them? You know, we, we think about you know, the, the unholy trinity as a world, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those three conspire against this, this flesh, this indwelling sin that still resides within believers. But the world comes against us, but also Satan comes against us. And what Jesus is saying is, in the midst of the unholy trinity coming as an affront to every believer, we need to be guarded and kept. Now, this is why I believe that Paul, actually in Romans chapter 8, uh, actually reads this. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Romans chapter 8, you know, where he says, you know, what shall separate us? Um, 
from the love of God in Christ. You know, in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, I mean, this is one of the most heroic texts ever. He's saying, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's essentially saying, if God is the one protecting you, if God is the one securing you, if God is the one who is loving you, then nothing can come against you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Like in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, he's actually reiterating John chapter 17, because not only did Jesus pray this right before his trial and his crucifixion, but Jesus continues to pray for us. He continues to pray that the Father would protect us and secure us and love us, and that we would know the Father's love in Christ. In verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I mean, every time I read that, I feel like I'm getting like a halftime speech that's better than anything that Deion Sanders has ever given. You know, I think I'm getting, like, I, at that point, when I think about the love of God and the way that, that nothing will separate us from the love of God, you know, in the midst of all the distress and tribulation and turmoil that we go into, when you exit these doors, I recognize that your lives are not um, placid, that they are not just smooth over the top. And yet when we read that, I'm like, let's go, man. Let's storm the gates of hell together because the Father will secure us and protect us and love us. Now, not only are we um, called, you know, not only are we given, not only are we secured, but there's this idea that happens, you know, when we see this, that we are also sanctified. Now, look at what it says uh, here in verse 16. It says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then he says this, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And then he, he goes on to say in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have also sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So there's this, you know, if, if Jesus is praying, you know, that, that, they would also, that we would be secure within the Father's arms, He's also praying that we would be sanctified in the midst of our relationship here on earth. Now, what is it that sanctification um, means? Well, let me um, give you an answer you know, from the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Sanctification is this. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Now, when I think about this idea of sanctification, you know, let me, um, I have a few old friends who will help me you know, describe what this is. 
Um, first, uh, Thomas Watson uh, says this, and, and he's quoting First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three. He says this: "For this is the will of God, even for your sanctification." How many of you are concerned about the will of God, or you have a, a decision upcoming? That you're like, Lord, if you would just rend open the heavens and tell me what I'm supposed to do, I would really be, uh, it would really help, be helpful for me. Anybody have any of those decisions going on? Yeah, how about, how about this? If you're, if you're a high school student uh, and you're a senior, like we have a senior, like, and I even do this because I'm, you know, I'm foolish too. You're like, so what are you going to do next year? You know, what's going to happen? What are you going to do with your life? Or if you're in college, you're thinking, what do I major in? Or where do I get a job? Or where do I live? I mean, all of those things that we come up, or beyond that, who do I marry? You know, who do I marry? Um, How many kids should I have? Should I do this? Should I do that? I mean, all of those things, right? We think about all of those things in in light of, you know, what is God's will for my life? But do you know what? I can tell you very, very emphatically and explicitly, the will of God for your life, at least from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, is that you would be sanctified. I'm not really sure who you're supposed to marry. You know, I'm not really sure what school you should go to. I'm not sure where you should live, but I do know this. I know with great certainty that you are called to be sanctified and that Jesus prays that you would be sanctified. Thomas Watson says this. He says, the word sanctification signifies to consecrate and to set apart to a holy use. He says that there are two different aspects of this. There's this this private part, which lies in the purging out of sin. Sin, you know, sin is, you know, anything that we do against God's will or anything that we should do that we don't do. He says sin is compared to leaven, which sours, and to leprosy, which defiles. You see, sanctification purges out the old leaven. Though it does not take away the life of sin, yet it takes away the love of sin. Did you get that? It it doesn't take away that, it doesn't mean that we will be completely sinless, but it begins to change our attitude towards sin so that we don't love it. That's the private part of sanctification. Now, the positive part is this, which is, he calls it the refining of the soul which in Scripture is called a renewing of our mind and a partaking of the divine nature. The priests in the law were not only washed in the great laver, but adorned with glorious apparel. Just so sanctification not only washes from sin, but adorns you with purity. It adorns you with, with something that's beautiful. Now, you know, he also likens it, Thomas Watson likens this sanctification, um, is this, we cultivate this. He goes that, that it is, you know, we are naturally polluted and to cleanse God takes um, to be his prerogative. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And he says this about this, and I think this is true. Weeds grow by themselves. You guys know that, right? Weeds grow by themselves. Like nobody goes out and plants a whole you know, yard full of dandelions, Right? Like if you go to like Home Depot or Lowe's or wherever you're going to buy your seeds, there's not dandelion seeds that you can purchase, right? They just come about. But flowers must be planted and cultivated. Sanctification is a flower of the Spirit's planting. Therefore, it is called the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, 
I also think about um, this idea of sanctification and holiness. And let me um, reference uh, one of my favorite books ever. It's, it's a book called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. And, and he sums up um, the idea of, of sanctification in this way. He goes, sanctification is that inward spiritual work which the Lord Jesus Christ works in a man by the Holy Ghost. When he calls him to be a true believer, he not only washes him from his sins in his own blood, but he also separates him from his natural love of sin and the world, puts a new principle in his heart, and makes him practically godly in life. The instrument by which the Spirit effects this work is generally the Word of God, though He sometimes uses afflictions and providential visitations without the Word. Now, this book, Holiness, describes what sanctification is. It describes what holiness is. It describes the differences between justification and sanctification. Again, J.C. Ryle, the book Holiness, it's probably one of my top five books. If you haven't read it, you should go get it. You should read it. Um, matter of fact, I like it so much, my, my oldest son's middle name is actually Ryle, after the author of that book. Um, but it's really helpful for us to think about this. Now, J.C. Ryle also says, you know, with regard to... Um, holiness in this word sanctification is that holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God according as we find his mind described in scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. I love that. You know, we love what he loves, we hate what he hates, and we measure everything by the standard of his word. You know, brothers and sisters, what is the will of God for you in your life that you might be sanctified? Now, I say all that, and yet I'm looking around, and I know I don't see a sanctified people. And I'm laughing about that because I'm looking in a mirror, right? Because every time a pastor gets up and starts talking about holiness, you immediately go, oh man, but I'm not holy. Like, I struggle with this. I struggle with, you know, anybody raise their voice this week to someone that they were called to love? I mean, if, if you were thinking about, you know, when we were reading the, the, um, the catechism today, look at this one. Um, <laughs> this is a tough one. What is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? We read it earlier. It's, I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor. Not by my thoughts, my words, and this is the one that gets me, my look or gesture. Man, anybody roll your eyes at somebody this week? Anybody guffaw or just, you know? How about, how about a sigh? You know, any of that happen to you this week? You know, the sixth commandment says that you're actually murdering that person in your heart. And the will of God is so that you would not do that. You know, I mean, if you're a parent and your child is actually doing what you've said to do, but they're doing it with an eye roll or they're doing it with a sigh, you, you know how that makes you feel, right? It doesn't make you feel happy, by the way, you know, just so you know. I mean, all of these things, and you go, man, I, I mess up every day in this, and yet, yet I'm, I'm called to this. I'm called to be holy. I'm called to be sanctified. I'm called to be set apart, and yet every day I fail in thought, word, and deed. Every day. Here's what J.C. Ryle says, and I, I really appreciate this. He says, um, 
I do not say for a moment that holiness shuts out the presence of indwelling sin. No, far from it. It is the greatest misery of a holy man that he carries about with him a body of sin and death. That often when he would do good, but evil is present with him, that the old man is clogging all his movements and as it were trying to draw him back at every step he takes. Some of you feel this way because I know you do because I feel this way. I feel like if I'm thinking about the wheel turning, that that the wheel is getting stuck up and I'm clogging the wheel or the spokes of the wheel in the midst of my own sinfulness. Or let me give you a a, a different analogy that obviously J.C. Ryle wasn't thinking about it. You guys ever um, (laughs) tried to vacuum up like twine sometimes? Like you thought it was a good idea to vacuum up some twine and that twine gets wrapped around that spindle and all of a sudden it stops to work. And the only way that you can get it is to turn the thing off, to go get like, um, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe you have to go get a new vacuum, but you know, you're you're, you're cutting the twine that's wrapped around the spindle, and you're hoping that your wife doesn't catch on, that you broke the vacuum. And she's like, why doesn't the vacuum work anymore? I'm like, I don't know. I'd like, you should never ask me to vacuum again because uh, I'm totally enough there. You know, so all of these things are happening. That's sin in your life. And, and the, the work of sanctification is the Spirit's work where He is unclogging, He is untangling yourself from the sin in your life. And in the midst of that, it's a painful process. But He goes on to say, but it is the excellence of a holy man that he is not at peace with indwelling sin as others are. He hates it, mourns over it, and longs to be free from its company. The work of sanctification, the building goes forward even in times of trouble. I think that's very comforting because I I want you to know this is that you are not a finished product yet. Like until you are with Jesus fully, you will be a work in process. That there will be indwelling sin and that indwelling sin and, and how many of you um, in the, <laughs> this happens, right? Like in the midst of actually sinning, you have this, this heart that goes, I should not be saying this, thinking this, or doing this. By the way, that's a good thing. That because that means that the Spirit of God is working in you. And as you grow in sanctification, as you grow in holiness, you will find that, that more and more, incrementally, and then you know, incrementally, you will become more like Jesus. More like Jesus in terms of the way that you respond in the kindness, in the generosity, in the humility, in the courage that you have. Now, when we think about this idea of holiness, I think that we're called to this. We are called to be, be holy. We are called to be set apart. We are called to think about the things of God in this way. The, um, you know, the way of holiness, let me just real briefly, the way of holiness is this, is, is holiness is a conformity of the heart and the life unto God. We see this. I'm, I'm quoting Jonathan Edwards here. So there you go. Thomas Watson, J.C. Ryle, Jonathan Edwards, you get it all today. Um, holiness is a conformity of the heart and the life unto God. Second, holiness is a conformity to Jesus Christ. 
that we're, that we're reading more and more. We're thinking about Jesus Christ, and we observe in the life of Christ wonderful instances of humility, love to God, love to holiness, wonderful instances of zeal for God's glory, steadfastness in resisting temptations, entire trust and reliance on God, strict adherence to all his commands, astonishing instances of condescension, humility, meekness, lowliness, love to men, love to his enemies, charity and patience. What then is holiness? It is when we imitate Christ in these things, then are we holy and not until then. Becoming more and more like Jesus. And then third, he says, holiness is a conformity to God's law and commands. Which again, he, that's just a, he's further elaborating upon that. We think about Psalm 119, where it basically says, I just want to wrap myself around the word of God, hiding the word of God in my heart, listening to it, adhering to the laws, principles, precepts, commands of the Lord. Now, not only are we given, secured, sanctified, but the last bit in verse 18 is this, is that in the midst of sanctifying us, then he sends us out into the world. He sends us out so that we might be testimonies to the world. Now, it's interesting, it's very interesting, is that he would actually sanctify us so that then we can go out into the world because what does a sanctified people look like to the world? It looks very different. Because think about the the early church in the days of the Roman Empire. The church, which was marked by sanctification, marked by the holiness and the separateness to the world, it began to change things because the Romans looked at it. I'll give you a few examples. One was that early Christians had a sexual ethic that came from the commands of God. And the Roman people looked at it and was like, how can you know, free men and citizens of Rome decide that they are only going to be with one woman rather than have a whole litany of concubines and other people. And they looked at that and said, this is different. This is something that is totally otherworldly. I think that that also has implications for us today, that we have a, a sexual ethic that is defined by what God's standards are rather than what the world's standards are. In a similar way, we also see this holiness taking effect, and it began to change the Roman culture when, when, when people began to you know, use money differently. It wasn't all about how can I amass as much money and build barns and kingdoms for myself, but when I begin to give away my money because I want to see the kingdom of God grow, because I want the poor to be fed, because I want those who have less to be taken care of in the midst of the kingdom of God. That was something that was otherworldly, and that came from the sanctification and the holiness of God at work by the Spirit working in believers. We also see it in this way, is that the Christians early on had a high view of life. So that when children were discarded by their parents on rubbish piles in the Roman Empire, that Christians would take up those children and they would foster them and adopt them into their families. Or we also see it that those who are older were not discarded, but rather they were honored and loved. There was a high ideal of life within the early church and with the early Roman Empire that was something that was expressed because of the holiness of God. That all of those things we are called to be as well. Because we are sent out 
Every Sunday, we come in and we renew the covenant, um, the covenant with, with our God, and then we get sent out into the world to be the salt and light and to be the witness of all that Jesus has done for us. I mean, that, that's also when, when we think about the early church. You know, the early church was not so much worried about their own lives, but they were worried about the lives of others. So in the midst of, you know, plagues and, and disease, they would risk their life to take care of those who could not take care of themselves. Because here's the deal, they recognized that this life is only momentary and they're looking forward to the day when they will be with Jesus. And in eternity was written on their hearts and they were longing for the day that they would be with Jesus and they wanted to take care of those who could not take care of themselves. So they would go into you know, leper colonies. They would go into you know, places where diseases and, and you know, difficulty were at risk of their own lives because they recognized that they could do that because heaven was a promise that their God had made to them. That's what holiness does. Holiness, you know, as we're sent out, the world looks around and goes, those people are different. The way they think about sex, the way they think about money, the way they think about service, the way they think about each other, there's something different about them. There's this otherness. And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel is that that occurs once we believe and trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is given as a gift and he begins this great renovation project within our hearts to make us love what he loves and hate what he hates and desire what he desires. But brothers and sisters, we're all a work in progress. And as we come to the table this morning, I want you to know this, that this table is not meant for perfect people. If this table were only meant for perfect people, no one would come. The only way that we are right with God is through the perfect life of another, Jesus. You see this bread on the night when he was betrayed, he took this bread and he said, this bread is my body given for you. And then he took this cup and he, it was the fruit of the vine, it was wine, then we use grape juice. He said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. And my blood is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, as often as you take this bread and you drink this cup, you recognize that you're imperfect. You recognize that you're sinners, but this represents the way that you are reconciled to the Father through Jesus the Son. Because my blood was spilled, my body was given, so that you might be redeemed. You know, brothers and sisters, your redemption came at a high cost. It was the body and blood of Jesus. And the love gift that the Father has given to us is his Son. And the love gift that we give back as believers is our obedience and our love and our holiness, as imperfect as it might be. Again, this will always remain bread and this will always remain juice. And, and this, is the, the, this is not the table of grace, PCA. This is the table of the Lord. And he invites all those imperfect, broken sinners who trust and believe in Jesus alone for their salvation to come and partake. If you don't know Jesus, then I would ask that you would not partake of this. 
but rather you would find an elder after the worship service and say, who is this Jesus? I kind of believe I'm not sure what he did or what I'm supposed to do. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as, as you set aside these elements from their common use, Father, um, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would pour forth grace upon grace because we need it. We need your grace and your mercy just flowing forth from heaven upon us. Father, we are imperfect people. Father, when we think about holiness, Father, we think, like, how can we do that? How, what, what does it mean? And, and Father, we blow it every day. We, we blow it. We mess up. We sin. We err. Father, would you, would you show us your love and your forgiveness here? And Father, as those who are coming forward, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would think about how might we demonstrate our love for you in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.